Good morning, everybody. Great to be together on this cold and snowy day. Want to say hello to all of you joining us from our Farmington Hills campus and to the unusually high number of people worshiping online today. Uh, good morning to you. Uh, most people worship online from, from Michigan, although we always have a good showing from the state of Florida this morning. Uh, people vacationing in Florida, uh, snowbirds from Florida who've, who've tapped online today, not just to worship God, but to mock us. And uh, people in Florida, I was there last week, are complaining about the cool temperatures in Florida right now because today, friends, it's only 60 degrees in Orlando. Oh, yeah. Brr. Uh, six degrees right now where we are here in uh, Northville, according to my weather app. Not, not 60, but six, which is why Michiganders are some of the hardiest people in the world. Um, we're not the brightest people in the world, but we are the hardiest people in the world, and what a privilege we have to be together. Today we continue a sermon series loosely based on a book by Michael Frost called Surprise the World. That's the title of the book. The subtitle of the book is The, the Five uh, Habits of Highly Missional People. And Michael Frost in this little book says that Christians should lead questionable lives. It's an interesting phrase. We should lead lives that make people question us. Uh, how is that person so calm in the midst of calamity? Uh, why is that person so kind? What is that person's source of strength? How can that person be so selfless? We should lead the kind of lives that make people ask questions about us. Lead questionable lives and be questionable people. And it'll be no surprise to you here on a Sunday morning in church that today we're going to talk about the questionable life of Jesus. But today we're going to look at an aspect of his life that you probably haven't given much thought about. Whatever you know about Jesus, you know that Jesus was compassionate and wise and kind. You may not know everything about Jesus, but you picked up along the way that Jesus lived a remarkable life. He lived the most questionable life ever. Uh, people could not figure out Jesus. Why does he care about people so much? Why is he willing to suffer for people he's never met, for people who don't even like him? But today we're going to drill down on one of the, the ministry tools that Jesus used all the time. It's very powerful and it's very easy to overlook. And before we get to it, let me ask you a question. How would you complete the following sentence? The Son of Man, uh, this was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. When he referred to himself, he most often used the Son of Man came, and these words are used several times in the scriptures. The Son of Man came, dot, dot, dot. How would you complete that? Uh, one time in the Gospels, it's completed this way. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think everyone here knows this about Jesus, that he came to serve other people, and you've heard a lot of sermons about this particular verse. Another time that phrase is used in the Gospels, it says this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was concerned about people outside of God's family. People felt far from God. And you've heard a fair amount of sermons about this. But the only other time this phrase appears in the Gospel, it says this unusual phrase, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. You ever heard a sermon about that? I'm not sure I've ever given a sermon about that, but you're going to hear a sermon about this today. 
The first two talk about how, what Jesus came to do, and this, I think, speaks to how he did it. He did it in relationship. He did it around tables. He did it sharing meals and drink with real people uh, in real conversations. Uh, throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses meals to communicate acceptance and relationship. In Luke's gospel alone, we see a dozen references to Jesus either at a meal, on his way to a meal, or coming from a meal. Look at these examples from uh, just Luke's gospel alone. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners in the home of Levi. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is anointed at the home of Simon uh, the Pharisee during a meal. In chapter 9, Jesus feeds the 5,000 on a hillside. In chapter 10, Jesus eats at the home of Mary and Martha. In chapter 11, Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the teachers of of the law while at a meal. In chapter 14, Jesus is at a meal when he encourages people to invite the poor and the stranger to their meals. In chapter 19, Jesus invites himself to the home of Zacchaeus for dinner. In chapter 22, Jesus gives new meaning to the Passover meal and institutes the Lord's Supper. In chapter 24, the risen Christ has a meal with two travelers on the road to Emmaus and then later eats fish with the disciples in Jerusalem. It's probably a good thing Jesus did a lot of walking. Eugene Peterson poses this question in light of the number of times in Luke's gospel uh, that, 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 that account for his eating, the, the amount of time in Luke's gospel. Eugene Peterson raises this intriguing question. Is it significant that Luke, who has more references to save and salvation than all the other gospels, also has the most references to Jesus at meals or telling stories of meals? And I think the answer is Yes. There's a connection in how Jesus did ministry. One of the greatest gospel tools is food. And one of the ways we can surprise the world is by who we invite to our table. So let's look at the who, the why, and the what of this unusual practice of Jesus. The who, the why, and the what. And here's the who. One of the most surprising things about Jesus is who he shared his table with. And you will remember that Jesus got in a lot of trouble for the kinds of people with whom he associated. Jesus shared his table with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes, the Bible says. This was very surprising. Good religious people were expected to share meals with other good religious people. But Jesus shared meals with non-religious people and with even, even with people who did bad things. For this reason, the enemies of Jesus accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. That's what they said of Jesus. He was a a drunkard and a glutton. Now, neither one of those things are true, but the people with whom Jesus associated gave his enemies lots of ammunition uh, to criticize him. Now, technically, this word hospitality refers to the caring of strangers. In the New Testament, that Greek word that's translated hospitality literally means love of stranger. So it's great that you entertain family and friends in your home. It's great that you host your small group Bible study at your house and people tell you, thank you for your gift of hospitality. But technically speaking, in the strictest sense, when you have church people over your house or family over your house, that is called fellowship, not hospitality. Because hospitality in its strictest definition means love of stranger. 
right? It, it's, it's inviting, uh, uh, whenever you see hospitality in the New Testament, commanded and commended, it's referring to this practice of opening your home or sharing your meal with someone you do not know very well or with someone who is very different than you. It's inviting a coworker that you don't know well to lunch. It's inviting a new neighbor over to your home for a barbecue. It's intentionally including someone outside of your generation or your social circle or your faith tradition. And this can be pretty scary at first. And Jesus did this. Jesus shared meals with all different kinds of people. Jesus used his table to break through social barriers of his day. Remember, the very first miracle that Jesus performed was turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana. This is recorded in John chapter 2. The, the water jars that Jesus used to turn water into wine had been set aside for ceremonial washing associated with Jewish purification rites. So if a Jewish person felt that they had been contaminated by associating with Gentiles, with sinners, with non-Jewish people, if a Jewish person felt contaminated, they would use that water to, to purify themselves ceremonially. They would recite ceremonial prayers and they would restore themselves to their sanctified state before God. So Jesus takes these symbols of separation between uh, Jews and Gentiles, between holy and unholy, and he fills them with wine, a symbol of unity and relationship. And then he continues to do this throughout his entire earthly ministry. This weekend, we remember civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who at a time when blacks and whites did not associate, he would be in relationship with white leaders working toward mutual understanding. These kind of things can all start with a meal. Use your table to break down the walls that separate people in our society. Surprise the world by who you invite to your table. In the parable of Jesus that was read earlier today, it said this. Let me remind us of this. Uh, Jesus said, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Be strategic about who you share meals with and make people wonder why you've included unexpected guests at your table. Be intentional. Now the why, why does this work? There's something about sharing a meal together that creates a relational bond. It's natural, it's normal, it's non-threatening, it's low commitment. Conversations just happen more naturally at a table. So instead of inviting your neighbors and your friends uh, only to church and to church events, invite them to your home. Invite them out to lunch. Now, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a church guy, and I think we ought to invite our friends and neighbors to church, but even I recognize uh, in our culture today, it's never been harder to invite somebody to church. Inviting someone to your home, inviting someone to lunch may be a lot less threatening to them and and to you. One of the five missional practices in this book is eat. Eat is a missional 
practice. Now, at Ward Church, we have taken Michael Frost's missional practices, five missional practices, and kind of reordered them and tweaked them a little bit so they spell the word bless. And maybe you remember this, five missional practices. Number one, begin in prayer. You bless somebody by praying for them, praying for their career, their marriage, their family. You pray blessing upon them, and you pray that God would guide you to just who needs the right kind of contact. You begin in prayer. The L is listen. You listen to other people. Don't do all the talking. This is classic friendship, right? You listen. You learn their story. This, this is how you care about someone. This is how you bless them. You listen to them. Uh, this, the E is eat. At some point, you share meals together. You really feel that relational bond. Uh, S, the first S is serve. You serve somebody. You go and shovel the snow for them. You help them with repairs around the house. You offer practical, tangible ways to serve people. And the very last letter is for story. At some point in friendship, you share the story of your connection to God through Jesus Christ. And if they're open to it, you share the story of the Bible and God's pursuit of the human race. These are ways you can bless people, B-L-E-S-S. And notice the E is right in the middle of bless, showing its centrality to, the, I don't know if that's true, but it's, so, it's, it's very important, the whole E thing. E is so important, it works so well, that actually uh, missions organizations uh, train their missionaries, their cross-cultural missionaries, in the strategy of eating. The best way to get to know people, the best way to break down social barriers is to share a meal. It's a powerful practice. Along these lines, in their book, Right Here, Right Now, Alan Hirsch and Lanch Ford uh, say this. They say, sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. We can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. And if every Christian household regularly invited a stranger or a poor person into their home for a meal once a week, we would literally change the world by eating. I think we need a theology of eating. There's something about sharing a meal together that fosters friendship and creates a sense of oneness. And in essence, this is what happens every time we share the Lord's Supper. We take bread and cup and we break the bread and we bind ourselves to Jesus, our Lord. We bind ourselves to each other as the family of God and we bind ourselves to Christians all around the world. There's something about a meal that binds people together. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses meals to communicate acceptance and to create a deeper relationship. Let's talk about the what. What are we being asked to do? I'm calling on you to consider fostering the habit of eating with two or three people every week. Not adding something new to your calendar. You already eat the standard three meals a week, uh, some more, some less. That's 21 meals a week. And I'm asking you to consider bringing somebody else into one of those meals that you're already going to have. Three people a week, or if you want to cut corners, you can invite three people to the house all at one time. Now, here's some things I've learned from people who do this really, really well, this ministry, this missional practice of eating. Uh, first of all, they would tell us, don't define sharing a meal too narrowly. Now, I think at some point you want to invite people to your home for a dinner, but I know that can be intimidating for the host. You got to clean the house. You got to get everything ready. Maybe you're not confident about your cooking skills. Uh, so you can invite people to lunch. 
a coworker to lunch. That's much easier, perhaps. Um, I was talking to an elder in our church who said he loves to invite coworkers out to lunch, and it brings him great joy to pick up the tab. Uh, it's joyful for him to pay for someone else's lunch. And I told him, I, I want to hear more about that sometime over lunch. If a big meal's too intimidating, invite people to your home for desserts. When the weather gets nicer, invite people over for a, for a bonfire where you can cook s'mores together. The, the, the key isn't that it's a dinner. The key is it's all about relationship. And so don't, don't define this too uh, narrowly if it's intimidating for you. Just get going and, and break bread with other people. And the second thing that wise people have said about this practice is think about alignment rather than addition. In other words, it's not something you have to add to your calendar. You already have 21 meals. Just invite people into something you're already doing. Think about alignment rather than adding new things to your calendar. And you can set goals around this. You could set a goal that says, every Thursday, I'm going to invite a coworker that I don't know very well to lunch. Every other Friday, we're going to have a family over to our home for a meal. Once a year, we're going to host a neighborhood barbecue at our house. Uh, Think about things you already do and invite people into that rather than adding new things uh, to do so it's not so intimidating. Sharing a meal with someone is one of the best ways I know to bless somebody, to get to know somebody, to break through social barriers, and it models a core habit of Jesus. Lastly, let me just say that eating with others can be a profoundly theological practice. It mirrors the character of the triune God. Uh, Look with me again at this old icon of the Holy Trinity. Uh, I've shared this painting before. uh, A copy of this hangs in my office. This was painted uh, about uh, 1440 A.D., by Andrei Rublev, and it's a famous painting of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sitting at a table together. And when we sit at a table, we mirror one of the characteristics of the triune God, which is community and fellowship and oneness. We, we, we engage in something that reflects the very nature of our God. Uh, Janice Price puts it this way, I love what she said, Hospitality becomes the modus operandi of mission as those in common participation in the life and mission of God meet and receive from each other. This mirrors the hospitality of the Trinity as God chooses to open himself up to the other through the incarnation and to subject himself to the created order. I think it's no coincidence that when Jesus was giving to his followers something to remember him by, he gave them bread and cup a symbol of a, of a meal. Now, we focus primarily, when we take communion, we focus on the bread being the body of Jesus hung on a cross and the cup being the blood of Jesus shed on a cross. But remember, these disciples had broken bread with Jesus hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times. And when they remembered Jesus, they, they, they pictured Jesus right there at the table. Jesus extended acceptance and fellowship of his table to them and to you. And we have an opportunity to extend our table now to others. For many generations, the centerpiece of a a church building was the communion table. The primary symbol, the physical symbol of Christianity was not the pulpit. 
It wasn't the choir loft. It wasn't the stage. The primary symbol of Christian life was a table. That reflects the way Jesus lived. You could say that you and I have been sent to eat. And I think that's, that's true. We've been sent to eat with gospel intentionality, to love the stranger, to break down barriers, to bless our neighbors, and to be people of the table. God extended his table to us, and now we extend our table to others. Go ye, therefore, and eat. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are the God of the table. You extended acceptance and relationship to us. Help us now to extend our table to others. Call to our minds names of specific people you are calling us to invite to our table. Use these meals to encourage and connect and use them as a means to point to you. To you be the glory and praise we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.